This is your coffee break. Hi friends, I'm back again this week with another awesome guest. I would like to introduce you to Professor David Galef, who is a professor of English and the Creative Writing Program Director at Montclair State University. David, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for talking with me. Um, it's a pleasure. Oh, I'm so excited. Um, I have here in front of me a copy of David's latest book because he has written, I want to say, more than a dozen. Is that right? Yeah, I'm, I'm a shameless eclectic who writes in as many directions as they let me. Okay, I also I want to ask you about that then because I have noticed um, all of your books seem wonderfully uh, diverse, and so I, I remind me to ask you that later if I don't remember myself. But sure, I have here in front of me uh, your latest book, which is called Brevity: The Art of Writing Very Short Fiction, and underneath that it says A Guide to Writing Flash Fiction, and then under that it says A Short 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 primer, and then a flash fiction handbook. I love the play on words here. Um, would you consider yourself an expert in flash fiction or as I learned it in college, you know, short, short fiction? Well, I've certainly spent a long time at it. I published um, a bunch of flash fiction. Um, I've taught it for years. I've written on the topic. Let me, let me back up a bit. Yeah. Um, and by the way, I love talking about writing. It's part of my job and I like my job. Um, <laughs> It's always but, good. But but let me let me let me as I say back up to this. For over two decades, I mean, I've taught creative writing. I ran the MFA program um, at Ole Miss. Um, I, as you pointed out, I now direct the creative writing program at Montclair State University. And and what that means is I get sent a lot of books on creative writing. Um, and for years, people you know would ask me, um, "Are you interested in writing a creative writing book?" And I'd say no because you know I had plenty to say but nothing that other writers and, and teachers weren't saying. Mm. Um, one thing I was doing was using really short fiction as reading and also writing assignments. I mean, given a limited amount of time, which I suppose applies to us all, it pays to write short if you can think of a way to contain your narrative. And starting, this is around the mid-'80s now, um, the, the editing duo Shepard and Thomas came out with well, it's what you said about short shorts. They came out with a collection called Sudden Fiction, um, and it blossomed um, into Sudden Fiction Continued, Sudden Fiction International, more Sudden Fiction. I have them all. Um, I have uh, Sudden Fiction right here in front of me. <clears throat> That's my favorite, actually, the first one that came out from Gibbs Smith. Yes. And then later the titles went to Norton. But the, the stories, as you know, they were all under 1,500 words or about six pages. Later on, Tom Hazuka came out with something called flash fiction, which was this, I, I guess in some ways, the next generation, a little shorter, a thousand words max, perhaps with a little more punch, hard to say. And then with the web, you know, came a flash fiction explosion, mm. zines, contests, anthologies, you name it. And yet, and, and here was the point, whether I'm an expert or not, there was no <laughs> textbook, well, there's no textbook devoted to the form, not mm. really. Um, Rose Metal Press had a guide with author interviews and there's been a lot of columns on Flash. There's a, um, a book by Particle Press that had something. But nothing, to my mind at least, again, this is, this is my opinion, um, nothing that really took the central issue, which is what can you do in a small space and goes at it with, with sort of more, of, more of a system rather than make every word count, which is certainly true. What I want to do, since I have, have that kind of mind, I think, is to categorize I mean, each, each chapter has a different possibility for the form. Mm -hmm. So, for example, 
um, vignettes, slice of life. Um, the French author Colette is particularly good at that. That's something that you can really do quite successfully in about a thousand words. You know, you have an incident, you have a scene. Uh, it might be perfectly prosaic. Um, something happens at the mall. Something isn't right with the school lunch. Something happens at work, whatever it might be. Containable. If, it's, if the incidents are chosen well, um, it illustrates something really rather remarkable in, in perhaps a quiet way. And so that's one type of flash fiction. There's also character sketches, a perfectly legitimate form of a little precy. You know, this is, this is you know, Roland. Um, he has a nasty habit of, insert nasty habit here. He always <laughs> does blah, blah, blah. Wait, let's put him into action um, with his partner, whom he doesn't get along with because, and so on. And by the end of a few paragraphs, you got a pretty good handle on Roland, or was it Ronald? <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's containable, it's doable. And I, I, I mean, I'll just talk about a, free, a few more, whether it's letters, diary entries, fables, um, and so forth. I have a section on prose poems, though, though some people regard that um, as a bit of a sort of a category breaker. Um, and in each case, I want to talk a bit about the history of the form, maybe to show I'm an expert. Um, <laughs> you are, but, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. Um, but but I, I mean, as I said, I, I've spent a fair amount of time going into the history of it. Flash fiction, or whatever you want to call it, short shorts, flash fiction, and then there's, there's more modern ilk like microfiction, mm. um, nanofiction, hint fiction, as it gets shorter and shorter. A lot of that has been around, um, as my students say, like forever. Um, <laughs> whether, you know, whether it's biblical parables, mm. whether it's, say, Shonagun's pillow book and her ruminations, whether it's Boccaccio's Decameron. And in our century... There's there have been series. There's I mean I, I have in front of me a book that says best short shorts of 1932. Mm. It's an old um, faded hardcover that I bought online. You know it's a mixed bag the way many anthologies are, <laughs> but it's kind of cool that someone back then was thinking, what um, <laughs> what do people during the depression have an attention span for? I know short shorts, <laughs> and it really is kind of remarkable what they build into a small space. Liberty Magazine. Um, long forgotten, but in the in the teens and twenties, and I'm talking obviously you know 1910s and twenties, um, they would often feature really really short stories with a reading time. Uh, mm -hmm. You know this should take you five minutes. This should take you seven minutes. It's sort of the principle behind Smoke Long Quarterly, which I think is one of the more successful um, flash scenes online. Point is, this should take you as long as it takes to smoke a cigarette. And I hope I'm not promoting any bad habits. No. I love that. And you know what? You've seen that come back now with web articles online. You know, there's a little bar at the top and it says, you know, you yeah. have 30 seconds remaining. <laughs> right, right. Um, I hope it doesn't get anyone nervous. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's something really attractive about a pretty good read that you can accomplish or read, depending on whether you're a reader or writer, in a short amount of time. And then you could go on to another one. In a classroom, for instance, I often have to make the decision, should I assign a rather long, you know, classic short story, which is certainly doable, and I'll, I'll, you know, the class will pull out neat things to talk about, or in that same space, I could assign about three flash fictions in three different directions mm. and go that way. So um, I often go for the flash fiction, um, certainly in a beginning workshop. It's containable, it's doable, it's exciting. I know I used to write a bus and on my commute, I would read poems because, you know, uh, yeah. yep, it's, it's, it was yep. just, I just have my little anthology with me and I would read. 
Do you know who is reading flash fiction right now? Yeah, this is a good question. It's part of a larger question, like who's out there and who's reading. Mm -hmm. But from what I can loosely determine with all the flash fiction sites and so forth, I mean, on the one hand, there are there are strictly curated sites which also publish flash among other stories and you know whoever their reader base is they're reading but there are also specifically uh, specific sites devoted to flash fiction like everyday fiction or flash fiction daily um, 101 words there's one called 100 words these people are often contributors as well as readers which is the kind of youtube interface that is mm -hmm. people you know will watch a video but they might also upload one and so there's that you know fine participatory feel there probably are metrics that is, um, for certain sites, you know, who clicks and, and where they shop and so forth. I have to say, I'm not sure about that. I think a lot of writers actually aren't sure about who reads their stuff. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, you just occasionally you get grateful. I was going to say letters in this case, texts or emails, and you keep going. <laughs> so yeah. unless, do you have some ideas about that, about who, I mean, you have, I think, a really cool podcast Thank you. Um, do you do you know who your audience is? This is what's really interesting, and I and I think there's also a distinction between <laughs> knowing who your audience is and knowing to whom you're making it accessible. So, like right. for my podcast, I can kind of tell, um, like you said, kind of who I get feedback from. But then also, I can just you know, since it's a digital medium, I can dive into my analytics and say, like, oh, right. you know, seven people from Canada, you know, listen to my show today. That's cool. So I feel like we're a little bit you know more advantaged in digital mediums to know you know, who our audience is. And that's why I'm so interested in a lot of these things as they relate to flash fiction. I know that it's so hard to get, okay, this is going to sound really snobby, but it's really hard to get people to read poetry. Is it just right. about that hard? Because, you know, poetry feels inaccessible to so many people. Do you right. feel like flash fiction, while maybe it is more accessible in its content, it's still not accessible as available, you know, to the, well, to the modern consumer? The compression effect can have um, some 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 strange feelings attached to it. That mm -hmm. is, uh, this was a regular short story, but in place of the like, I'm making this up <laughs> and badly because I'm doing it on the spot. But in place of the long acerbic dialogue that details um, the him, you know, him and her proceeding toward divorce, I give you two lines summing up 25 years of marriage. Mm -hmm. um, fill them in. <laughs> or in place of what was going to be a convoluted chase scene, I simply have the impact of a car crash. And another, you know, sharply representative effects. But a couple of things. One is, I mean, good art is representation, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you're never going to learn all, all the facts about someone's life. So I select three that will do it. It's done more so in flash fiction. And that the it's the sort of severely limited view or representational view that can cause the problems you're talking about in poetry. Hmm. I mean, some people say about poetry, well, they, they scratch their heads and say, I don't get poetry. Um, and it's my job to prove them wrong. Um, <laughs> and we can start, we can, well, we can start them with narrative poetry mm -hmm. because that tells perhaps, you know, a rattling good yarn. Um, and they'll, they'll go on with that, whether it's Kipling or, or anyone really. But in flash fiction, there's 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 a narrative of sorts um and so they'll get that what they may not always get and this depends on the skill of a practitioner is reading for the gaps reading for what's left out hmm. um so that if you've got well here's a good example where i think it is accessible 
Um, I don't think this site is, is still online anymore, which is too bad because I kind of liked it. I think it was two, two sentence horror stories. And cool. it's still archived somewhere. I'm pretty sure about that. And the way it worked was first sentence, fairly innocent setup. Second sentence, oh, and you thought that? You were wrong. <laughs> and it was doable. It was done in a small space. And the horror depended on the reader projecting like mad into what wasn't quite said. Mm-hmm. All right. So that, you know, there'd be for, I'm, I'm making this up again, but, you know, there'd be someone speaking um, in a sort of a, 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 a buzzing, whining voice. And, you, and, and later you realize, oh, my God, this person's been changed half into an insect. <laughs> this is like a remake of The Fly. And again, you wouldn't have the visuals you might have in a longer medium. You don't necessarily need them. Um, what you have to do is think really economically. Uh, I have a whole chapter on cutting down. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and there are a variety of ways of cutting down, too. You can do it on the micro level, which is slash that adverb. It probably wasn't necessary. Cut the dialogue tags. It's pretty clear that Sarah is talking. Um, <laughs> I, I just made that name up. I forgot that your name is Sarah. That's but, okay. Uh, That's okay. Uh, any event, or on the macro level, where you think, you know what? It's a gorgeous paragraph of description, that old antique store. But it's flash fiction. Why don't you just give me the plate glass window and one piece that you can see from the street, you know? And I think practicing that kind of art of representation is good for poetry. It's good. It's good for your fiction. It's good for visualization. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way, sort of that that you know our well at this point grandparents or maybe even great grandparents would say, as they often did when I was growing up, you know, you kids have TV mm-hmm. and you get all the visuals. When I was growing up, all we had was radio and we had to eke out the voices, the, 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 the images. We'd hear, hear something and we'd have to understand what that sound effect meant and so on. And they had a point. And we'll probably be telling, you know, our kids, you know, when I was growing up, all we had was television. We didn't have the five sensory attachment uh-huh. <laughs> um, and, and, the, and, and, the, and the, and the, you know, virtual reality sense around that you people have. And I think there's something about that with flash fiction. Some of it is what isn't quite there. Mm. I mean, readers interject themselves anyway into a good short story. I think they have to do it even more in a piece of flash fiction. I love that concept. I I thought of so many things while you were talking about that. They're very different things. The first one was from your book, your statement that good flash fiction relies on the art of implication rather than statement. And I I think that's really lovely how we pick up on implications because they're just the undercurrents beneath the story and you have to somehow create them without really overtly creating them. And then the other thing I was thinking of was the X-Files because I'm a huge nerd. Oh, yeah. And why that show is so successful is they never showed you the alien and the, you know, they or, right. you know, when they did, it looked stupid. So they, they were very good about hinting what was behind the corner without revealing it. And I think there's some really powerful storytelling in that. So I, I love your point about leaving extra room for the reader to become more fully involved with the story. Sure. And, and for what's worth, you can... I mean, it doesn't all have to be hints and veils and asides. Um, it can be, you know, one hard statement. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Matt ate the snake, or, <laughs> or, or, you know, after that seventeenth drink, I and insert point here. But then it doesn't go on about it. It's you're left with reverberations and the impact. Uh, I mean, it was Hemingway, and, and I'm not the greatest Hemingway fan, but I like some of his the lessons that he sort of tries to teach. Hemingway was once asked, well, what exactly he was trying to do in things like the Nick Adams stories, and, and, and he, in fact, he's, he produced some flash. Um, 
fiction. And he said, well, I take a traditional sort of story and I cut off the ending, <laughs> which I kind of like. It's sort of annoying uh, because, in fact, plenty of people like endings and I understand that. But again, what can you do in an ending? You don't have to tie it up with a, with a pink ribbon. You certainly don't have to say happily ever after. But you can often just end with a physical gesture or a line of dialogue. And it may seem kind of slight, but it's the end of the story. Mm-hmm. And and what it means is that you can play it lighter because it has the whole weight of the story behind it. So that, mm-hmm. for instance, you know, if let's say we have a character who, you know, at the end, um, he runs up the stairs. That's kind of meaningless unless you know, because I've emphasized it earlier on, the guy's got emphysema, is determined to beat it. And this is a heroic gesture mm-hmm. um, or a line of dialogue when she, you know, she says, um, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, OK, fine. But if, in fact, um, he's been arguing about her, let's say, decaying lucidity, you know, she's not quite there anymore. Mm-hmm. And then she ends with, I don't know what you're talking about. That really means something. Yeah. Um, I think this is true of, of fiction in general, but particularly with Flash, where a paragraph of concluding material is perhaps a sentence. Kind of with that, you know, you have a certain amount of ambiguity. Do you think that ambiguity is necessary for the, sh- for the story, for the flash fiction to work, or is it something else at work there? I'm, I mean, I was trained as a British modernist years ago. That's what I got my PhD in. And um, some of that era is, is sort of a field day for the unreliable narrator mm. and, and ambiguity, productive ambiguity, that sort of thickens and enrich, enriches the texture. And, and there's William Empson's famous Seven Types of Ambiguity, uh, which is a whole book on it. I like it fine. I'm not sure it's peculiar to flash fiction. That is, there's some flash fiction. Let me, let me um, I'm going to erect a false dichotomy here. Oh, boy. Uh, which okay. is to say, well, but because I'll, I'm going to say, and this is inaccurate, that there's two kinds of flash fiction. In fact, there's as many kinds of flash fiction as there are people writing it. But the two directions, at least, I had in mind are toward the sort of slightly cryptic, arresting statements, slightly prose poem, jump cut surrealism where sparrows chatter in Greek and, and, and eat a hot dog and I'm skateboarding um, up in the trees and Tony remarks to me, you know, you put on weight lately. I mean, <laughs> st- and, and the reader, the, 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 the uh, responsible reader will, will roll up her sleeves and try to put this together because that's what readers do. And if it works, it's because there's some cool imagery there and there's some thread of narrative. And if not, not. But and, and there's a fair amount of flash fiction out there. And I don't want to ruin anyone's fun. It's, it's fun. To, it's, it's cool to play with. Um, it is sort of like a prose poem. And, and I have a section devoted to prose poems. Mm-hmm. But there's another kind of flash fiction that takes its cue from the old twist story. I'm hesitant to say O. Henry because those are rather long, actually, and almost Dickensian in their slow, curling, curving sentences. These are twist stories where, um, you know, you thought it was this, boom, it's not. Better reread the story and you realize she's actually not the victim, she's the assassin, which is, in fact, the fa- a famous story by Jeffrey Whitmore called Bedtime Story. Those are more often the sort of everyday fiction People remember the short stories they liked in their youth, say, and are trying to do it in a shorter and shorter space. Mm. It's a slightly different animal. Tell me more about that. That's very interesting to me. So it sounds kind of like certain stories are meant for certain certain forms of, of fiction. Right. Well, as I say, I'm very hesitant to say, well, high art versus low art. Oh, yeah. I don't believe in that distinction. I like anything that's good. 
But there, that said, there are some stories that try for more subtle – well, subtler effects, a mood, uh, someone you know reaching a crossroads, a deci- you know, some, some story that's dense with imagery – rather well done and there it borders in, you know on poetry some story that um deals with some psychological nuance perhaps we're in the landscape of colette who'll talk about you know a man and his second wife when she runs into his first wife and makes some decisions about that um and then again there are other stories where people love the setup this is what i call the what if premise which used to be really big in fantasy and science fiction mm. that is I don't have much time. I got a thousand words, but what if dogs could fly? <laughs> um, look out below. <laughs> um, or what if, um, you know, um, in this village, the one hut you should really avoid is the sorcerer's hut, but I have no choice on this dark night and that's where I'm headed. Open up your story there. Again, this what if premise, it could be fantasy. It doesn't have to be, but it doesn't specifically deal with nuance or, or subtle characterization, it, it's, it's a what-if story. You take the premise to its logical or absurd conclusion, end of story. And it's fun. One other aspect of this, this um, handbook, I was told not to call it a textbook because that would turn off people, but it sort <laughs> of is. Um, but one aspect of it is a sense of humor because mm. I find a number of, of writing guides or whatever are very earnest and i understand that it's a serious business we're embarked on it's a career for people it's an avocation it's a lifetime occupation you know this you write um Mm -hmm. and so i I would never dismiss this but i can't it's just me i can't be so solemn about it and in fact uh, a couple of readers reports because this went through you know the usual readers reports before for columbia University Press came out with its, its, its stamp of approval. They said, oh, you know, it's a little too jokey. In fact, I have one section devoted to anecdotes. And I don't just mean jokes. You know, an anecdote can illustrate a point as in anecdotal evidence. Mm-hmm. And, there's an, and, that, and that certainly works very well in a small space. And, you know, what it illustrates is up to you. But I think that bothered people who thought, well, if it's funny, it's really not serious. And I disagree. Mm-hmm. Um, some of my fondest memories of stories are stories with a good sense of humor. I don't miss, I don't want to dismiss any kind of flash fiction. I think there's a huge tent. What I want to do in this book was to write about the various kinds and explore the possibilities. Um, I don't know if you're supposed to say this with a textbook, but I had fun writing it. Good. I love that. And I, and I can tell, I, I love your, I was going to say, you know, one of the things I loved about it, you just, your voice comes through so wonderfully here. And I can tell that you are, that you love what you're doing and, and your sense of humor comes through in your personality. So I always think you. that you can tell when the author is having fun, like you, you can tell. So I think I that's what makes this such a, a, well, one of the things that makes it such a lovely book. I hope so. I think what's really interesting to me, and, you know, it's been like a decade since I was in college, and so maybe this is something that's discussed to death, but I I really love the unlimited nature of these stories and what is actually a very limited form, and a limited number of, you know, the, the different types of flash fiction that you have in this book, it could like literally be anything. So can you tell me a little bit more? I mean, are are really the only limits just the number of words that you're using? Well, Okay. You're right. The def- practically the definition of flash or short shorts is, is word count. 
And then when you get to the smaller forms like microfiction, that was um, a term that Jerome Sturm used in an anthology of his, um, 250. Hint fiction, a guy named Robert Swartwood, 25. So yes, you're hearing numbers here, and that's the most basic definition in the same way that poetry you know, strip it of, of, of meter and rhyme and maybe what you got is lines. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond mere word count, there are plenty of people who argue, and you'll, you'll get disagreement on this, which, which to my mind indicates, you know, a healthy topic. Yeah. But the disagreement is, you know, how much of a, quote, story, unquote, does it have to be? Hmm. And that's unclear. What is a story? What is, what is too gappy to fill in so that if you simply, a la haiku, say, give me an arresting instant, you know, in the park where there's a huge sound and, you know, the skateboarder looks up and the woman on the park bench all of a sudden starts to run away and the pigeons flutter and I could go on about this. I'm just registering different impressions. Once again, I'm making things up and badly. No, <laughs> but, this doesn't uh, agree. Okay. All right. Well, different, different impressions to this loud sound that I don't even characterize. I just, I just, I just you know, register it. And by the end of a few paragraphs, I got about seven different takes, seven different characters, pigeons or characters, um, to this noise. And then I cap it, because I want some narrative thread, I guess, with one character who doesn't seem phased by it at all. And what does that mean? Maybe, I mean, and I go on about this. Is that a story? Is it a moment in time? Um, it's fun to discuss these kind of angels on a head of a pin topics. I, I don't want to come down on one side or the other, but... I would like some. I would like some kind of narrative force, though I would be loath to say what that would be. Mm. Um, to my, I mean, after all, it is flash fiction. There is, in fact, um, flash creative nonfiction. I don't know about flash poetry. That's what we often define the short lyric as. Mm. But again, if you're going to call it flash fiction, then to my mind, again, um, it should narrate something or other but you get hung up in the details as you know what is narration what is plot (laughs) um you know it's the 21st century it is yeah um things like that have been exploded time and time again quite productively um i mean modernism took the notion of character and extended into stream of consciousness and fragmentation and the fragments are all over the place nowadays and and sometimes they get collected and sometimes they don't a story a cool narrative story in fragments like Again, whether it's a sudden fiction collection or something else, I can't recall, but um, it's sort of um, bullet points, like a list of incidents. And the reader reads one after the other. They're not, they're not in order, but slowly puts them into chronological order. Oh, yeah, I see someone drowned. Ah, here they are trawling the river for a body. I guess that comes later. Ah, here is the dead boy's girlfriend who's crying copiously. And I could give you five more little scenelets, and they're fragments. And by the end of about a dozen of them, you've got some semblance of a story, albeit out of order. And it, it's pretty cool. The, you know, another thing is the sheer difficulty level, provided it's not too high, hmm. also makes the reader invest more of her time, talent, or whatever. And so, the, so by the end, she sort of feels like, hey, I did a good job. I, I put it together from what the writer left out for me to do. And so there's maybe a more do-it-yourself aspect, and mm. I think that's okay. It invites the reader to not only to really, you know, fill in the space that's left, but also to participate. Again, because a lot of this stuff is online, and, and here this has not little to do with Flash, um, but, it's, it, but, but there are hybrid forms out there, 
And there's also hypertext, mm-hmm. uh, which people like Robert Coover were experimenting with at, at, at Brown University years and I mean, decades ago. But talk about participation. The reader, insert yourself because here's a crossroads. Uh, again, here's let's let's take a famous play. Oedipus is at a crossroads. There's an old man being carried in a litter who's blocking Oedipus' way. You, the reader, decide: should you um, bow and 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 go the other way? Probably a good idea, but as you know, that's not what he, do- he does. Should you take the old man's cattle prod, his double goad, and smash his brains in? Probably not a good idea, but that's exactly what he does. Um, and perhaps in your interactive version, there's a third option. But you can take the narrative in two different directions. You can actually do that with flash fiction or any fiction these days. Hmm. There's a famous novel by uh, Julio Cortázar called Hopscotch, where it's a regular novel and you can just read it straight. Or you can read it, the chapters in the order of, you know, seven, five, three, thirty-three, nine, or what the order, another order he has in mind. And it still makes sense. Oh, that's awesome. It's, it's really cool. And this is way well before the days of anything electronic. And you could just as easily do that in Flash, perhaps even more easily, because there only be about five pieces. I, I like trying to excite people with possibility. That's, that's part of my job. It makes me excited, too. And, you know, I've been teaching for a long time, but I still like it. And there's nothing quite that sets me off as showing not even necessarily explaining, but showing some, some, some student writer a way to do something or an author she might not have read. And her eyes, I swear, if not then, later on when she returns the book, they light up. Mm-hmm. And in a couple of weeks later, there's a marked improvement in her writing. She, clearly something has ignited or caught on. I like that over and over again. It's always different. It's always another student or any, any writer, actually. And that, that's what I do. <laughs> the irony is, of course, is that every once in a while I remember to reply that to my own writing. And maybe not. <laughs> I often refer to writers as possibility addicts. Yeah. And, and just the that's excitement. Good. Yes. The, and I know that light in, in the eyes that you're talking about because I remember reacting that way when, you know, I wasn't an English major until I went to college and I didn't mm-hmm. know how much I loved it until I got there. And just I just remember just being on fire all the time for these beautiful and just mind-exploding things I was reading. So, my gosh, I love that. And and it's funny yeah. that you said that, too. And I keep interrupting you. I'm so rude. No, um, no, that's right ahead. <laughs> I'm just like a freight train here. Um, it's just funny that you said that because you've been – I have this list of questions, and you've just been answering them before I've had – my next question for you is what's your favorite thing about teaching flash fiction? Ah, okay. And so thank you for answering that. But, boy, and see, now I've talked myself into a circle. Well, I wanted to ask you a question, actually, which is yeah. – you write, and I would have the same question I had about myself, which is you write and you also have this podcast where you give a lot of good advice to writers. Do you ever feel a little guilty like, gosh, I really should take some of this advice more to heart myself or, oh, or do you do anyway? Or Oh, yes, yes. Um, in fact, my, my husband is a very good listener to my show and he's like, Hey, remember that one time you, you know, you <laughs> talked about, and you know, I also have a nice healthy dose of imposter syndrome. Yeah, we all do. Oh, well, and I heard you say that, you know, when at first you're like, yeah, I'm not an expert, even though you're probably the most qualified person to talk about flash fiction that I've ever met. Not I that I've met a lot. The, yeah. No. <laughs> I, no, I appreciate the compliment. Again, I, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's because I distrust, quote, expertise. Mm. I do think a lot about the topic. I, I, I'm not sure 
who would be an expert in something like this, although it's been around long enough, it strikes me, given the, the number of really cool podcasts you've done, that you're quite an expert. And I really respect that. Well, thank you. My gosh. And I don't think of myself that way. I'm like, well, yeah. I'll tell you what you told me. If you're not, if you're not an expert in this kind of thing, who is? <laughs> you know what's funny, though? And I don't know if this is true for you. The reason I started podcasting wasn't to, you know, quote unquote, become an expert in something. It was to right. understand my own thoughts and to figure out something in the company of others. And do you ever, do you ever get that while you're teaching as well? I do. Um, I wish I got it more often. I sometimes get it in the advanced class mm. or alternatively from a bright student. Actually, I take it back. The, the, some of the writing prescriptions per se we discuss, um, but you're right. Every once in a while they, they make a suggestion often based on some aspect of culture that, that I didn't know about because, you know, as you get on in life um, and you're, stu- you're still, no offense, quite young, you realize my cultural references are slipping. I need to update my iTunes. I don't know who this pop cult guy is and so on. And they do. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's not, just a, uh, it's not just a name. It's a context. It's a way of thinking. It's, mm-hmm. it's you know, uh, the, possibly a premise for a short story and so on. And they know that stuff. Um, they're plugged into a world that you're not. And you can try to keep abreast, as I do, um, and I think a lot of us do with, with you know, limited success. But you can also listen. And yeah, every once in a while they come up with some slightly mind-bending premises that you think, you know, I wouldn't have written this. And that's meant as a compliment. It's something that comes from, from the fact that they're millennials living in this era – and I'm sympathetic because it's not easy to get a job if you're a millennial and, and, and. But they have a, a different perspective. And that's – this isn't flash fiction anymore. This is teaching. Mm. Uh, it, isn't just, it isn't even just teaching writing though. Of course, that, that's what I do a lot of. It's the day I stop learning from teaching is the day I stop teaching. Mm. I'm always learning something or other. And sometimes I teach myself because, you know, I'm not the kind of person who wants to quickly glance at, at lecture notes before striding in. I prep for classes. And in the preparation, I look at new stories. I find some new flash online which might interest them. And that's about as much as I can do because, you know, I, I teach full time. I write on the side, family guy. And, 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 you know, there's only so much time in the day, as I'm sure you're aware. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, usually one of the questions I ask is, how do you do it? But you strike me as a very scheduled and prepared person. Would that be accurate? Mostly. And my son is now grown, so there's not so much an issue. But I, one secret that, that I'm always happy to share, not, I'm not sure everyone can do it, but I'm a great fan of it, is compartmentalization. That is, you may have a job that's beating you up. You may have family issues. Um, you may have an overlong commute. But at some point, Come home, have dinner, shut your eyes for a moment, whatever it is, make a cup of black coffee, but some separation between all that stuff, and then you close the door if you can, and give yourself a little time to write. It doesn't have to be that long, but it's important to do that. Raymond Chandler, who at this point when he made this pronouncement was a professional writer, writing did not come easy to him, which is not apparent from Mm. his almost effortless style, like two new metaphors per page, like, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the... like, you know, the suspect came off the 912 from San Francisco looking as inconspicuous as a kangaroo in a dinner jacket. That's cool to make up. Anyway, but he had difficulty. And so he had one rule. And I tell this to people who are working on a long project because I think it's crucial to, you know, put your, put your butt in the seat. 
he would give himself four hour long writing sessions, which is far longer than I would ever do. But he would say, say to himself, during this time, you don't have to write, but you can't do anything else, <laughs> which I think is ingenious because, I mean, think about it. You, you, you don't want to write. You fiddle with, I mean, you try to do other things. You don't want to, you can't fiddle with your paper clips. You can't. It was in pre-email age anyway. Mm -hmm. But after, after a little bit, you sit down to write because there's, you have given yourself nothing else to do. The door is closed. And so how to find time to write. Give yourself a little time. I'm well aware that people with busy lives might, might manage only 15 minutes or whatever. It does add up. And in some way, because not all of us have this luxury of a room of one's own and, and you know some income, mm -hmm. um, somehow create a psychic barrier or a closed door or just, just you and your laptop at Starbucks to write for a little bit. Um, I think the disappointment comes in when you write for a little bit and it isn't stellar. And again, it's my job to reassure people that's okay. That's what rewrite is for. That's what getting started is for. If you can just get some words on the page, later on you can massage them more into shape and it builds. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned you know, methodical, also patience. I think if you're working, even on a piece of flash fiction, sure, one of the beauties is perhaps you could write a piece of flash fiction in one go, although don't neglect editing. But if you can't, you can work on it in successive tries. You know, um, speaking of, of the poetry you used to read on the train and short lyrics, William Carlos Williams, who lived not too far away from where I teach, he was a full-time GP, yeah. uh, you know, medical practitioner, and he had he had a typewriter bolted to a drop leaf on his desk. And in between patients, he would crank up the, the piece of wood with the typewriter on it. And then it was when it was horizontal, he would start typing something. Then in would come another patient, he stopped. And I actually often think that that's why some of his lyrics are so short. Oh my gosh, yeah. But, Circumstantial. But, but he, <laughs> yeah. But he made, he made do with the time. I've heard from women with newborns that, I mean, that, that's a job that takes up so many, so much time and it's so important, but that oddly enough, they actually found the time, it, the time to write and you ask when they say when the baby's asleep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's a good feminist argument. It, that is you do the work you do and I don't mean to dismiss it. It's important stuff. It puts food on the table. It takes care of people, but you have more than one thing to do in life and you arrange for it to happen. And after a while, though it may not seem much at first, again, it adds up so that in, you know, 30 days, you might actually produce a whole clutch of flash fictions and you get to work editing them, showing them to people, perhaps sending some out, and then you do it again. And the neat thing about a practice effect is you do get better. There's a quotation by Ray Brabber. I'm sorry, I seem full of quotations. No, I love um, this. I collect um, quotes, so this is okay, wonderful. Well, this, this is a good one. I like it. And I, I'm going to misquote slightly and get the right version online, but it's something like, he says, write a short story every, you should write a short story every week. There's just no way in the world you can write 52 bad stories in a row. Yes. And he has a point. He's talking about a year of writing fiction with some attention, and he's right. You'll, you know, odds are almost overwhelming that you'll produce something pretty, pretty half decent, at least. And I think that's one of the appeals of flash fiction, too. Which is, if you fail, and that's fine, you pick yourself right up and start again. It is, I have to say, a lot easier to finish a piece of flash fiction and then, whether it's any good or not, start another one than it is to finish a novel 
which is an undertaking in itself, and and dust yourself off and say, okay, I guess I'll start another one right away. <laughs> it's 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 been done, but it's not as easy. Well, and and you've written novels. <clears throat> yeah, I kind of um, want to ask you about these different experiences. I I write novels reluctantly when I have a short story that is getting out of hand. Ah. Um, I'll hit hit the twenty, then thirty, forty page mark. And by page 60, I'm fooling no one. I think, okay, <laughs> I've, got, I've got too many characters or too complex a character. She's doing too many things. I've got a plot that, that won't quit. It's time to stop and outline where I'm going. Or I just can't keep on. Um, I hit critical mass. It's too difficult to hold it all on my head. You know, what Dan said to Cynthia, what Cynthia said back to him. Okay, fine, but wait a minute. They said that 30 pages ago. And, oh, my gosh, I left Charlie hanging from the cliff in his Chevy. <laughs> Outlines help. I also have to lower my standards a bit for the language because if you're producing prose day after day, it's not all going to be stellar. Mm-hmm. Um, again, that's for a later stage. And one thing I, I would like to – I mean I'm, 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 I'm going to quote something and then I'm going to disagree with it, which is there are some critics who say, I think a little too smugly, ah, it's harder to write – you know, a short story than a novel, because a novel is a loose, you know, baggy, all-embracing form, and there can be some bad patches, whereas a short story has to have every word perfect and correct order, and I want to scream, no, no, I've seen plenty of stories with the wrong words, and <laughs> plenty of polished novels, and I know what they mean, which is that something that's off will show more in a short story, but to answer your question, there are problems that crop up in a novel that would never crop up in a short story. Like, it's day 17. What is my protagonist going to do today? Oh, darn, he did that already. Mm-hmm. Um, or I'm running out of um, minor characters to help this poor woman you know, upstream or whatever it might be. There's just so much to hold in your head. Whereas a short story, and and by extension flash fiction, you can really work on a piece of intensity without losing focus, mm-hmm. without thinking what's going to happen 30 pages later, without thinking um, and what will happen 10 years from now, because your concern in flash fiction is to do something in a small space. I mean, I know that sounds almost redundant, but small space concentrates the mind and builds intensity almost by its very nature. Mm-hmm. It's those limits. I mean, it's it's right. there's just something really magical about about the container, which is just interesting to think about. Right. And it needn't, I mean, in, in all fairness, it needn't be, as the two sites, 100 words and, was it, 100 word story, and then there's 101 words. Um, as those two, those two sites indicate, it, it needn't be 100 or 101, why not 105, but the sheer fact of a particular limit that you're heading toward, it, it's a little bit to, to analogize the way certain let's say student poets snap into focus when you say, okay, the next one going to be a sonnet. Mm, mm-hmm. I want only 14 lines. I don't care what your rhyme scheme is. Let's keep it more or less iambic pentameter. And they think, oh, okay. And in trying to find, let's say a rhyme for life, they come up with strife and therefore you have a hard road ahead. And yet yeah, the constraints themselves make for ideas Virginia Woolf talks at one point about it. She said, for nothing matters so much as art and, of course, order. Mm. And I think if you're looking for a minimal definition of art, it's some kind of order imposed. And the unhappiest writer sometimes is someone casting about for an idea. But if you give them a prompt, 
that's big in flash these days it is as it is in regular stories you know give give these give these writers some lead in sentence you know i'll never forget the day you know that i got caught for indecent exposure in the parking lot because <laughs> and you're off and running i actually used to use that assignment that's awesome um, in in first person um or, um, you know, explain, please, why you got caught shoplifting in Kmart and avoid the usual excuses. These are for plot, you know, plot uh, exercises or for character. Let's say I want you to construct a character solely out of clothes. That is, I don't want editorializing. I don't want the PA system uh, of description. I just want description of clothes and what it implies. Why does her T-shirt have that little stain in the shape of Italy? Um, that's, that seems to be, look like gravy and yet clearly isn't. And and I feel about that. Um, and you know, go to town on that again. It's, it's the idea of continually exposing people, as you say, to possibility and seeing how they run with it. Sheer open possibility is a bit flummoxing or paralyzing. Mm -hmm. Um, outlining a particular possibility, I think is, is much easier for them to take it, go with it. And on their own terms, produce something perhaps quite different from what you had anticipated. And, and that's fine with me. I love that. You, you answered, you, you almost did the same thing and answered the next question I was going to ask you again. <laughs> I'm very you're sorry. Very, no, no, you're very good at this is what you are. Okay. Um, so what do you want your students, you, you know, you teach flash fiction. What do you want your students to take away from your classes? First of all, um, I teach beginning, intermediate, uh, advanced. We have a creative writing minor, uh, which has a lot of students in it. And I don't just assume that because the students are better, it's an intermediate course. Um, mm-hmm. There are different exercises. There's more autonomy and so forth. That said, the commonality across the courses is, is so simple as to be almost naive sounding, which is I want them to become better writers and readers. I think they're related. And, and willy-nilly, again, because they're exposed to a variety of texts and they write and write and write again, they all do, uh, at least move from point A to point B. I, one of the more annoying questions, as I'm sure you're aware, is when, when someone perhaps at a cocktail party learns what you do um, and then assumes the, the stance that I recognize so well and the glint in the eye and says, well, can you really teach creative writing? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I understand the impulse, but what I want to – say back to them is, I don't know, um, you know, maybe you weren't that good at math. Can you really teach math? Because, you know, you took that algebra course twice and, and never seemed to sink in. It's a craft, no question. It has elements of craft and art. And you certainly can teach someone to be a better writer. I think the underlying premise of their question is, can you teach um, Johnny or Jane to be the great, next great American novelist? And the answer is not exactly no. I can give them tools. I can um, improve their writing. I can lead them to authors they may not have read. But let's face it. How many people in the physics class are going to go on to become world-famous physicists? <laughs> it's not a fair question. The better answer is, as I said, um, you can teach them to become better writers. Will that be satisfying to them? Generally, it is mm-hmm. um, to become more proficient at something that you rather like. It's the outsiders who say, who figure, well, you know, if they're not going to write a prize-winning novel, what's the point? And I think that's very, very narrow because how many people in any field have a certain amount of recognition? What's cool about writing and, and with the web, you know, with flash fiction and the web scene is you actually can gain some recognition by crafting a pretty good flash fiction piece, sending it out there, and, and a bunch of people read it. 
that that's success of a certain kind. It's not to be despised. I, I, I mean, these are all various answers to, you know, what I hope for in my writing class. Another point, I suppose, is, you know, how many people do you reach? Again, that's varied. There are some people, even in the beginning class, who've clearly had a lot of practice, um, I think because they read a lot, and it shows. And they have polished sentences. In some cases, I need them actually to sort of wreck that smooth exterior and ugly it up a bit. Mm. Um, other people who may have had, you know, har- harrowing, light, that's a difficult word to pronounce, <laughs> har- harrowing life experiences that really would be cool if rendered into print, but they need to read more, and that's fine. We work on that. But they all improve to some extent. And then in the intermediate class and, and beyond, they do it more and more on their own. The textbook vanishes hmm. uh, to be replaced by simply an anthology. By the advanced class, if they're going to be, you know, continue, continue as, they're, as they're going, they need to know what's gone on in post-war American fiction, by which I mean World War II to the present. And so the anthology is somewhat historical. They need not to have their hands held so much anymore. And so though it terrifies them to some extent, I say, I want 40 pages by the end of the semester. Cut it up how you want. And that is very liberating to some people and, and not to others. No one, by the way, no one has taken me up on this, you know, 40 pages. No one has, has said, okay, I'll give you, um, let's say, 15 flash fictions. Though that would be a cool way to go. Um, instead, they mostly do, you know, two or three stories. But mm-hmm. they could. They really could. Um, and maybe I'll suggest it next class. We'll see if anyone goes for it. That's immediately um, where my mind went. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, 40, you know. Yeah, yeah. Cut it up. Um, and that's, by the way, that's another way um, to handle a novel, too. Hmm. Because it's such a daunting large project, you um, cut it up into bite-sized sections. This day, you work on a particular chapter or a particular character and so on. If you see the novel as one large, impenetrable task, that's a big issue. Instead, it does help, as I said before, to compartmentalize, to do one task at a time, and slowly the pages amass, or again, if you're writing a, you know, a flash collection, which a lot of people have done. Oh, and that's one other point. I tend to think of a flash collection as just that, a collection of, let's say, you know, 30 different worlds in that many, mm-hmm. uh, twice as many pages. Um, but there have been a number of people who have written novels in flash. Interesting. Can you tell yeah. me more about that? Well, I'm not one who's done them. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I think um, I think Meg Pograss has done one. You should check me out on that. P O K R A S S. And there there's some other people who've done it. Um, it's basically really short chapters that add up to something. I'm don't really do that much with it because to my mind it seems a bit like, as I said, a novel with really short chapters. That is, I'm not sure if it really takes advantage of the flash as a flash. Mm. But it certainly is flash fiction bent in yet another direction. And, and so, yeah, I'm always curious. Kind of reminds me of, do you, are you familiar with the artist <clears throat> Chuck Close? Yeah. So he would, um, you know. I know what you mean. Yep. Yep. So the, the tiny yep. paintings that make up a larger, I, I really like that idea. Yeah. I mean, and to some extent, it's sort of like George Saran pointillism. Mm. Um, but you're right. Um, Chuck Close's little, they're not dots. They're sort of like softball size, perhaps, yeah. in some of the bigger paintings. You're right. Um, and depending on how close or how far you stand, you see different things. No, I think that's a good analogy. And again, um, as to what makes flash fiction, I'm often borrowing from other media so that I'll say, well, uh, for example, here's a painting uh, with some trees and a house. Fine. But why does the painting end at this third tree? 
is there a forest beyond there? Uh, this house um, with the roof. Um, I notice you've cut off some of the sky here. Is something going on up there? In an attempt to show other writers who are trying to write, um, say Flash, that where you start, where you stop, is another means of originality. That is, lived happily ever after is the way a lot of fairy tales end. But did, did the prince really want to put up with Cinderella and her shoe fetish? I don't know. Um, why don't you continue beyond the usual or before the, the uh, painting begins? And so there are analogies with visual art. There are hybrid forms nowadays on the web, flash fiction with an illustration as a prompt or otherwise. There's, there's experimentation with auditory forms. Um, this is another projecting edge of flash that I haven't done much with or, or seen that much of, but it's out there. I like that all these different possibilities you had mentioned before. Oh, you know, in our day, you know, we had television and that filled in all right. the gaps for us. What's really interesting to me is the reemergence of podcasting and audio dramas and, and sure. you know, people I think are hungry for that, for their brains to actually do more work. So, yes. Agreed. And, and for the same way, people are writing more and more because they're texting and emailing. Mm-hmm. I mean, to some extent, it's replaced the phone call. To phone someone often seems like, no, I think I'll text that person instead. And so there's a lot of text being produced. And not surprisingly, I have read entire stories in email or text. Oh, yeah. Um, and some of them do quite a good job. Oh, my gosh, definitely. I, You know, one of the... Um, the points we touched on earlier was kind of the, the relationship between technology and, and flash fiction and, and right. looking at, you know, Twitter and the 140 characters and the two sentence horror stories and all of that stuff. But right, right. That's, that's <laughs> one, that's one peril of all this stuff. It is a great, wild, wonderful world out there. But again, there's only so much time you've got to focus. Mm -hmm. And so I think after enough sort of surfing, drifting and so forth, um, you settle on a, you know, a few kind of things that you really like. And then from time to time, you should start experimenting. I mean, I do tell this – is, this is advice John Updike gave years and years ago when he was all of 50 years old and Time Magazine made him right, uh, man of the year uh, – person of the year. I think in that, those unenlightened days, it was man of the year. Mm. And they interviewed him. And he said a, a lot of things that I often quote. One of them was, young writers should be experimenters. You should try everything. Um, he said, because you never know what you might be good at. And it, what's particularly cool to see if I give a presentation at a library um, or something like that, and there's an, there's the, there is, to put it bluntly, older writers there, they may not have written much or, or – but, but and, and maybe having really difficulty with their memoir, cum, novel or whatever, but they try Flash and that's manageable. Mm -hmm. And they run off something that they're really quite pleased with um, and we're both happy. So um, there's the, the manageability aspect, which is not, not a small thing. Mm -mm. It just makes it feel so much more inclusive. So I appreciate that. One, one yeah. thing as we close sure. up, can you tell mm -hmm. people where they can purchase a copy of Brevity or any of your other works? Sure. I mean, in the old days, I would say, and I still say with some, some, some feeling, you know, go to your independent bookstore and ask for it loudly and often. <laughs> um, but this is 2016 and you can go to the Columbia University Press website um, and order a copy. I have a website, www.davidgaliff.com, uh, with a, an additional brevity page. But I have to say, um, you can support the behemoth. You can go to Amazon, hmm. where I think an awful lot of my books are available, although I don't like the word awful in there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, many, many books. And it, it, it runs a gamut. And if I'd stuck with you know sort of one profile, 
I might be better known, but there's poetry, there's uh, Japanese translation, there's some novels and short stories. You can also um, get some of that for free on my website. I give samples, and I'm always happy to have visitors. Man, I, I love that you practice what you preach. You know, you have this wide variety of things. You never know what you're going to be good at. So I like that you've tried them all. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> look forward to the podcast. Wonderful. Well, David, thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. This has been just, this has just been incredible. Boy, I just, I don't even have words right now. So that's maybe a problem. But, you know, because this is a podcast and I can't that's just... A very- that's a, very, that's a good, funny way to end, though. <laughs> well, no words. Goodbye. Um, All right. <laughs> David, thank you again. This has been wonderful. And just please keep in touch, keep writing, and keep inspiring your students to become better writers. You're doing great work. Thank you very much. I feel the same about your podcast. <laughs> All, right. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.